Before we get into God's Word, let's pray, and then we will dig in. Heavenly Father, we just pause for a moment, uh, recognizing that these are your words you have written to us thousands of years ago, but yet you have preserved them so that we might benefit from them, and you might equip us to do your will. And so what we know not, teach us, what we have not, give us, and what we are not, make us, for the glory of your beautiful name, amen. Years ago, I read the book Night by Eli Wiesel, a Nobel Peace Prize winner, whose writings have focused on the Jewish Holocaust and its atrocities. Eli was imprisoned by the Nazis when he was 16. He endured many unspeakable horrors at Auschwitz, and he recalls in that book one particular incident that will forever live in my mind. Two adults and a child, maybe 12 years old, had been caught secretly holding arms in the camp. They were sentenced to death. Wiesel said the young boy had a refined and innocent face, so different from the gaunt and disfigured faces of many of the other prisoners. He said it was like the face of a sad angel. The guards erected three gallows, there were three chairs, and nooses were placed around their necks. All the other prisoners were forced to line up and watch this gruesome spectacle. Long live liberty, cried the two adults, but the child was silent. From the rows of anguished spectators behind him, Wiesel said there came a cry saying, Where is God? Where is he? The chairs tipped over. The bodies dangled from the ropes. It was a terrible sight. The two adults died in a matter of seconds, but the third rope was still twitching. The child being so light, he stayed alive for 30 minutes before he passed away. Behind me, Wiesel said, I heard that same man asking, where is God now? Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, I hope you're never in a situation like that where you have to witness such abominable evil. But I'll bet there have been some times in your life where you've asked a similar question. Where is God? God, where are you? The philosophical problem of suffering, as articulated famously by David Hume and before him Epicurus, goes like this. Is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he is impotent. Is he able but not willing? Then he is malevolent. Is he neither able nor willing? Then why call him God? Pretty formidable argument. Theologians call this the problem of suffering. It has been rightly called the greatest problem in the Christian faith. I don't know about you, but for me, this is not just a philosophical problem. It's a personal problem. This is a question we ask ourselves every single time we encounter grief in our lives, every time we experience sorrow, every time we have to watch a loved one get chronically ill, we wonder, why does God allow suffering in the first place? I mean, let's get specific. In my own personal life, I have watched my parents go through a bitter, angry divorce. I've watched close family members suffer physically through cancer. Recently, my brother-in-law, Pete, my sister's husband, was diagnosed with MS, And we all had to watch him get sicker and sicker and sicker, and he never got better until last year when he died. And now my big sister is a widow. And of course, as a pastor, I've walked through some really dark valleys with people, couples who are in my office crying about not being able to have children, or at funerals, I've stood in front of a casket where... I'm supposed to offer words of comfort, but the person in the casket is way too young to be in there. Just three years ago, I was watching the news, and uh, they were talking about a tornado that hit a particular city where my father lives. And I called him on the phone, and sure enough, it went right through his neighborhood, right through his house, ripped off the roof and one of the walls. I see that kind of thing, and I'm sure you see that kind of thing, and we, we go, God? What are you doing? How can you just stand by and watch all the pain and the suffering 
and evil in this world because, God, you could have stopped it if you wanted to, but you didn't, and I can't figure out why. That's the problem. C.S. Lewis called it the problem of pain. And the problem is just that. If God is all-powerful, certainly he has the ability to crush pain and suffering on sorrow on this earth. And if God is all-loving, then certainly he has the desire to do that. But yet suffering persists. And so many people say, therefore, God must not exist. As an example of that kind of reasoning, I would just offer you the words of atheist Richard Dawkins. The total amount of suffering per year in the natural world is beyond all decent contemplation. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. That's the problem. How do we respond to that? That's the question on the table today. The question is, how can a good God allow suffering. And there's many passages in the scriptures which speak to this great issue, but there is one book in the Bible that is totally dedicated exclusively to this problem. It's the book of Job. The book of Job is unique in that it implicitly critiques all of the common responses to the problem of suffering. And Job is a very long book, so we won't be able to look at the whole thing, but I just want to look at a few key points that are made. The why question, the how question, and then the ultimate answer from God himself. The why question, the how question, and then the ultimate answer from God himself. First, the why question. The setting takes place during the patriarchal period, sometime around when Abraham lived. We pick it up in chapter 1, verse 1. It says, In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. So here we are introduced to our main character, and he's being described as a man of enormous wealth. He's prosperous, and he is a prominent leader in his community there. If he were alive today, I imagine he would live in the upper class of Warren Township, and he would send his kids to Pingree and the other great private schools. He's also a godly man. He's blameless and upright, which means he's totally above reproach. And so for now, Job has everything under control, and we like that. We love that. We love being in control. We are really good at planning what tomorrow is supposed to look like. We have all kinds of expectations about how the future is supposed to pan out. And we live with all sorts of assumptions, some of them unconscious, but others of them quite explicit about things and how they're supposed to go in our lives. But then we suffer. And all of a sudden, the the tomorrow that we were planning on isn't there anymore. Now, all of a sudden, there's been an accident. Now, all of a sudden, we've got this very sick family member. Now, all of a sudden, the doctor calls and says, I need to see you right away. And then, in a flash, all of a sudden, the tomorrow we expected is gone. And we feel so helpless. In that moment, we realize we're actually not in control at all. And in that moment, sometimes we realize we've never really been in control. And often in those moments, we begin to look and wonder about the the one who is supposed to be in control. To answer that question, in the book of Job, we're going to be transported from the earthly realm into the transcendent spiritual realm, into the courts of heaven itself. Let's drop down to verse 6. One day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. This is baffling. Did you notice Who started the conversation? 
It's God, wasn't it? God is the one who says, have you considered my servant, Job? And Job is chosen to be tested, not in spite of his good behavior, because of his good behavior. Right out of the gate, this book completely flies in the face of the idea that God would never allow bad things to happen to good, morally disciplined, decent, God-fearing people. That is not the narrative of Scripture. That's just the beginning. It goes on to say in verse 9, Satan responding like this. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. Then the Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. And then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Here is the main issue in the book of Job. Listen very carefully. Satan is saying to God, nobody really loves you. No, Satan says, they all serve you for their own selfish reasons. Satan is an accuser. He is accusing Job of being a phony He is accusing Job of loving God, not for God's sake, but for his own sake, for himself. In other words, Job's good behavior at its root is done for selfish and rotten reasons. Satan says, Job doesn't love you. He loves himself. He's using you to do that, God. Job is a fraud. Job is a phony. God, you're just a means to an end. In other words, Job fears you, not for you, God. It's because of what's in it for him. Job's no fool. He knows who you are. He's not going to bite the hand that feeds him. So Satan says, go ahead, let some bad things happen to Job. You'll see, he'll drop you like a bad habit. Which leads us to the very first lesson in the book of Job. When we encounter suffering, we must take a moment to check for wrong motivations. See, right off the bat, the book of Job goes straight for our hearts. Let's give Satan a little credit here. Much of the human race works exactly like this. People try out God for a little while, not to serve or love or glorify him, but for what God can do for them. That's how a lot of human beings are. We know how this works in the human realm. You ever have somebody befriend you, not really truly because they wanted to befriend you, but simply to use you or exploit you because of what you can do for them? People do the same thing to God. That's what Satan is saying that Job has been doing. See, the book of Job begins by exposing our motivations and asking us this same question. Why do I serve God? Wait a minute, why do I love God? Is it because of just what he can do for me or is it because of who he is? Now, I know this doesn't sit well with our Western 21st century American self-centered, somewhat narcissistic culture, which avoids suffering at all costs and seeks as much pleasure and comfort as possible at all times. But often the only way to get down to that inner motivation in my heart is to give me a little suffering And then we'll see what happens. See, Catherine of Aragon said this, none get to God but through trouble. I find it fascinating as a pastor when I talk to people about like key moments in their lives. I say, can you give me like two or three milestones that you've been through? Things that like really shaped you and kind of altered the trajectory of your life. What I find fascinating is nobody comes up to me and says, you know, Pastor Dave, a few years ago, I got the new Apple Watch. And ever since then, my life... No, nobody says that. They always say that there was this unbelievable suffering that came into my life. And I wouldn't wish it upon my worst enemy. But out of that experience, it brought me back to God and brought up all these new possibilities for me. This week I was listening to an audio book 
written by Johnny Erickson Tata called A Place of Healing. Johnny is a quadriplegic. She's been in a wheelchair since she was a little girl. And she quoted this verse from the Psalms that I have never really thought about before. It was from Psalm 119. It says this, It was good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your decrees. See, my sister, who lost her husband last year, talks about different kinds of suffering, and she calls them qualifying events. In other words, there's these things which happen in our lives, and after those things, we kind of level up with a new paradigm after we face that issue. And so, yeah, those qualifying events, they're awful, they're brutal, you wouldn't wish it upon your worst enemy, but then out of that affliction, out of that suffering, comes all these new possibilities and purposes in our lives. And that's why God says there's this terrible yet beautiful refiner's fire kind of purpose behind your sufferings that I'm going to use to teach you about me. I realize that is not what we want to hear. Not only that, but the only way I can really be tested is I can't know why I'm suffering either. See, if Job knew why he was suffering, that reason would become his motivation to endure, to get whatever that was. But if you really want to see if somebody purely loves God just for God's sake, they've got to be willing to love him in the midst of suffering without knowing why. At any rate, the main issue here is Satan says to God, God, nobody loves you that way. But God says, yes, yes. Yes, some of them do. Watch this. Let's go on. Verse 13. So here's what happens. One day, when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby. And the Sabaeans attacked and made it off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I'm the only one who's escaped to come back and tell you. And then while he's still speaking, another messenger comes and says, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned the sheep and the servants. And I'm the only one who's come back to escape to tell you. You can go back to the slide before this if you would. Verse 17, while he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, the Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made off with them. And they put the servants to the sword. And I'm the only one who's escaped to tell you. And then in verse 18, it says, and while he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them and they are dead. And I'm the only one left who's escaped to come tell you. So here in this rapid fire succession, Job loses everything, all of his servants, all of his livestock, all of his property, and all of his kids, all on the same day. Can you just imagine? Now, what was Job's response? 20. At this, Job got up, tore his robe, a sign of mourning, shaved his head, again, grief. Then he fell to the ground in worship. And said, naked I came from my father, mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Amen. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Job begins to grieve, and somehow, some way, he finds a way to remain faithful to his Lord. And so after round one, it's, it's Job one and Satan zero. So Satan comes back to God again. And I'll just summarize it in chapter 2. He says, you know, God, okay, but the reason why he's still faithful to you is that you haven't allowed me to inflict him physically. You stretch out your hand on his flesh. Then you'll see he'll curse you to your face. And so God says, very well, go ahead, do what you will, but spare his life. And so Satan does, and then on top of everything from chapter 1 and chapter 2, we learn that Job develops these painful sores all over himself. And he's in excruciating pain. Even his own wife comes to him and says, Job, why don't you just curse God and die? But Job will do no such thing. 
And he climbs up on this dung heap to mourn, but he won't give up his faith in God. In fact, he says, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. How has Job found a way to trust God and worship? How has he found a way not to be embittered by these circumstances? How is that possible? Theologians say the reason why that's possible for Job is that Job has centered his life not around his possessions or his power or his prestige or his comfort or even around his loved ones. He has centered his life on the one thing that no one could ever, ever, ever take away from him, God. And he has said with the hymn writer, in every high and stormy gale the anchor holds within the veil. Now don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to minimize the suffering that he has endured. I'm simply just trying to say there is a powerful resource available in the Christian faith that we can hold on to in every single storm. Let me illustrate. One of the greatest preachers of the gospel of all time was John Chrysostom. He was called the silver-tongued because of his verbal abilities. I want to read for you a dialogue between John Chrysostom and the Empress Eudoxia. John was brought before her and threatened with banishment, but yet he insisted to stand for Christ. This is what he said. You cannot banish me, for this world is not my home. But I will kill you, said the Empress. No, you cannot, for my life is hidden With Christ in God, said Chrysostom. Well, then I will take away all your treasures, said the Empress. No, you cannot, for my treasure is in heaven and my heart is there, said Chrysostom. Well, then I will drive you away from all of your friends and you will have no one left. No, you cannot, said Chrysostom, for I have a friend in heaven from whom you can never separate me. I defy you. There is nothing you can do to me. See, what Chrysostom knew was a freedom of believing and knowing Christ as the very center of his life, and he planted his faith firmly right there and said, when all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. See, that's what Job knows. Now, when it comes to suffering, there's two questions. There's the why question, why is this happening? But then there's also the how question. How am I supposed to get through this? In terms of the how question, the the way you get through suffering is through comforters. And usually the place you go to for comfort is, is your friends. That's why we have Stephen ministry here at Millington. Friends are like shock absorbers on the car. The shocks are there not to totally eliminate the bumps on the road, but to absorb the bumps so that when you hit them, your car doesn't literally break into pieces. Good comforters are like that. When you go through suffering, they're there to help you ease your burden and your suffering and help you absorb the bumps on the road without you literally breaking into pieces. My sister Beth, who recently lost her husband, as I mentioned earlier, So the question for me is not where is God when I hurt. It it became who is God when I hurt. And God showed up through my friends. Job has three friends. Bildad, Zophar, and Eliphaz. And they try to offer comfort to Job. But the only problem is they are terrible comforters. Yet from them, we can learn still in a negative way how not to offer comfort toward those who are suffering. I just want to give you one example. His friend Eliphaz tries to offer some wise counsel in chapter 4. Here's what he says. Consider now, who being innocent has ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. At the breath of God, they perish. At the blast of his anger, they are no more. Can you see what he's saying? Come on, Job. Innocent people don't go through this kind of thing. If you're reaping trouble, Job, you must have sown it. You reap what you sow. 
How about you stop your belly aching? How about you stop your blubbering? How about you stop all the emotions? You brought this on yourself. You know you did. Why don't you figure out what you did? You know, make amends and everything will be all right again. There is a way of using theology that actually wounds people rather than heals them. And maybe it's true sometimes, but you cannot reduce all suffering down to that kind of recipe like you push the right buttons and you got it figured out. That is not only very unsympathetic and cold, it's also way too simplistic. In John chapter 9, you'll recall they brought a man to Jesus who was born blind and they asked him about that. They said, hey, here's this guy born blind. Must it be because of sin? Was it his sin or was it his parents' sin? Remember what Jesus said? Neither. Neither. Eliphaz is wrong. And here's the point that the book of Job is making for us. When we encounter suffering, we need to correct bad explanations. Correct bad explanations. Now, let me be honest. Eliphaz's advice here, his counsel, is awfully close from what I hear to many, you know, when I hear some things that many Christians say today. If you're sick or you're suffering, it must be your sin. It must be your lack of faith. It's your fault. Now, don't get me wrong. I think we should do some serious self-examination when we suffer, and we should ask ourselves some hard questions. You know, why am I going through this? Where do I need to grow? What is God trying to teach me? What am I learning here? And those are all good. But, but, but to reduce all suffering to simply be always disciplined from God, that is not always the case. I don't even think it's most often the case. I think you can see clearly here from the book of Job that that, that does not represent what is a much more complicated Christian teaching on this subject. See, the classic Christian teaching says, no matter what precautions I take, no matter how well I have put together my life, no matter how hard I've worked to be healthy, still anything can happen. And no amount of money, power, or planning can guarantee that we won't face severe bereavement, illness, financial hardship, relationship betrayal, or disease. Those forces are outside of our control. You see, Larry Crabb one time came to speak to us at seminary, and he said, God doesn't play chess like that. This, I think, is the problem with Eastern religions and their response to the issue of suffering. They teach the same thing Eliphaz teaches, karma. There's no such thing as unjust suffering. Your suffering is a result of your own bad karma. If you're suffering, you must have done something wrong in this life or a previous life. You deserve it. That is a bad explanation for suffering. I love the way Bono from U2 explains the difference. The thing that keeps me on my knees is the difference between grace and karma. You see, at the center of all religions is the idea of karma. You know, what you put out comes back to you. And yet alongside this idea called grace comes to upend all that. The point of the death of Christ is that Christ took on the sins of the world so that we put out didn't, what we put out did not come back to us. You see what he's saying? We're Christians. We believe in grace. We believe at the bottom of our entire belief system is this truth that we do not get what we deserved. Instead, we get what we don't deserve. We believe that Jesus got what we deserved. Instead, we get what he deserved. That's grace. That's Christianity. That's very different from karma. This is where I think our faith really stands out as very durable. It gives us sound doctrine with which we can address this problem. See, the Christian faith teaches that there's these four grand movements in the, the narrative of the story of the Bible. There's creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. When it comes to creation, the Bible teaches that our God is not the author of suffering and evil. You know, some people say, well, you know, Pastor Dave, how come God did not create a world where suffering and evil didn't exist? And my answer is, he did. That's what Genesis 1 and 2 is all about. The problem is mankind chose to rebel against our creator and now we live in a fallen world and now there's suffering and sickness and death and, and the Romans 8 says all creation is groaning now waiting for what's to come. God's original design is broken but we're the ones who broke it. 
in the fall. Now you might say, well, how come God doesn't fix it? And why doesn't he fix it sooner? There's the rub. See, if God came down to destroy all the sources of evil and suffering, that would mean he would have to destroy you and me. Be careful what you ask for. See, the manner in which God decided to solve this problem is through the gospel and through redemption so that God could judge our sin but also save us in sending his son Jesus to pay the price for our sin. And then one day, we will experience consummation. Christianity has this doctrine of a final judgment where God will right every wrong and the arc of the universe might be long, but it's bent towards justice. And when you compare these great doctrines to some of the critiques of the new atheists that are out there, they look rather superficial. Listen to what Sam Harris says. He says, if God exists, either he can do nothing to stop the most egregious calamities or he does not care to. God, therefore, is either impotent or evil. There's another possibility, of course, and it is both the most reasonable and least odious. The biblical God is fiction. I want to assert this morning, and this might sound harsh, but that is a very presumptuous statement. There's this assumption that God is in my debt and that he's obligated to give me an easy, comfortable life, and he owes me, and since he's not fulfilling his end of the bargain, I reject him. You know, there's this one really thought-provoking question that God himself gives in the book of Job. It's all the way over in chapter 40. He says this. He says, would you condemn me to justify yourself? Look at that question. See, God is saying, how dare you vilify me so you can be justified? You're saying the reason why there's all this suffering in the world is not because it's your fault. You're saying it's my fault. How would you condemn me to justify yourself? This is exactly what those who use the suffering as an argument against God are doing. Let me ask you this. What do we really know about God's reasons for doing the things that he does? I mean, we're here 70, 80 plus years. Compared to an infinite God, we're here for five minutes. And you're going to parachute in and critique everything that's going on? I mean, imagine if my kids were watching a movie and I walk into the living room and I need to grab something in the living room, like, you know, let's say I left my keys on the coffee table and I stay in there for five minutes and I, I watch a little bit of the movie, but then I leave. And you come up to me and say, hey, how was that movie? And I say, ah, terrible, not very good, bad character development, the arc was going nowhere, that was a stupid movie, you should never see it. You'd be like, wait, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. You walked in halfway, you stayed for like five minutes, you were kind of distracted by something else. How, how could you make that kind of judgment when you didn't really watch the whole thing? Friends, here's what I'm saying. You're here on earth for five minutes. You're going to swoop in and tell God he doesn't know what he's doing? You're going to say with absolute assurance there's no reasons for suffering? How do you know? You're going to barge in and act two in the middle of a play? and You see how presumptuous that is? Alvin Plantiga says, the reason we have problems with suffering is we assume we could understand the reasons for it. But that's not necessarily the case, he says. He has this famous illustration. He says, imagine there's a tent, and I asked you, look in the tent, see if you see any St. Bernard dogs in the tent. So you look in, nope, no dogs in there. Okay, look in the same tent, see if you see any noceums in there. Noceums are these microscopic little bugs, insect creatures that bite you. They're very annoying, but you can't see them. That's why they're called noceum. So you look inside the tent, and you're like, no, I don't see them. Now, just because you don't see them in there, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're not in there. It's just that you cannot see them. So Plantinga says, that's kind of like the problem here. You're assuming the reasons for suffering would be more like St. Bernard dogs than they would be like noceums. That's not necessarily the case. Just because you can't see the reason, that doesn't necessarily mean the reason doesn't exist. See, the book of Isaiah says God's thoughts are above our thoughts and his ways are above our ways. And there's this great mystery involved. You know, Moses said, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. 
But rejecting God, because we don't simply understand, doesn't actually solve the problem of suffering at all. If there is no God, that problem just got a lot bigger. You might say, well, what do you mean? Well, first of all, if you reject God, it therefore makes all suffering completely meaningless. It's just a roll of the dice. It's senseless. It's unfair. Nature's red in tooth and claw. It's just a result of random chance. Tough luck for you, man. It's meaningless. Secondly, it gives up all hope. Why would you want to choose a worldview with no hope? That might be okay in your book, Sam Harris, but I I like my book better. And thirdly, Ravi Zacharias says that position is actually illogical. In other words, if you say suffering and evil disproves the existence of God, he says, you're actually smuggling into your argument truths that you're borrowing from Christianity. What is this category of morally good you're talking about? You're borrowing a category that only makes sense in theism. You don't believe in categorical evil. Let me let Ravi say it. He's much better at this. When you say there's such a thing as evil, you must assume there's such a thing as good. When you say there's such a thing as good, you must assume that there's such a thing as a moral law to differentiate between good and evil. When you say there's such a thing as a moral law, you must assume that there's such a thing as a moral lawgiver. But that's exactly who the anti-theists are trying to disprove. He goes on to say, well, so if there's no moral lawgiver, then there is no moral law. If there's no moral law, then there's no good. And if there's no good, then there's no evil. And the question actually self-destructs. And let me ask you this, how how come you don't think about that question differently? I mean, how come you don't say, you know, why is the suffering and evil that we encounter in this world not like 10,000 times worse than it is? How do you know that God is not holding back 99.9% of all the suffering and evil that could be your reality had it not been for his hand of grace making sure it doesn't occur? Answer, we don't know. There's so much we don't know. How about this question? How come the question is not, why is there so much good in this world? Why, if this is all such a random accident, is there such beauty in nature? Why is there things like music and friendship and the intimacy of marriage? Why is there art and philanthropy? Why do I look around at nature and stand in awe? If this is just blind chance, what? Why is there so much good out there? Maybe that's a better question. Yet one of the characteristics of mankind in our fallenness is a lack of gratitude. It says in Romans 1, neither did they glorify God or give thanks. But as Christians, we we should be more disciplined about remembering not everything that's wrong, but everything that's right and good and to dwell on these things as good gifts, as signposts for who God is. We need to correct bad explanations. And so that's the the why question, and we've looked at the how question, and now we're going to see the ultimate answer from God. It's after Job talks to his friends, and they're no help at all. Finally, at the end of the book, God comes down to Job, and God actually shows up. Take a look. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. The word used here is for a hurricane-force when did you know that the average hurricane has more power than a nuclear warhead here's our god coming in power abraham heschel said god is not like your nice uncle here he comes with his covenant name yahweh and here's what he says he said who is this that obscures my plan with words without knowledge brace yourself like a man i will question you and you will answer me Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Come on, Job. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? And Who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Speak up, Job. Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb, when I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness when I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place when I said this far you may come and no farther here is where your proud waves halt 
here's the point God is making. Job, what do you know compared to what I know? You have a major knowledge deficiency problem, Job. Look around you. I built all of this. All the animals, everything out in space. You're going to propose that if you were running the universe, you would do a better job. Your knowledge is infinitesimal compared to, infinitesimally small compared to mine. Which leads us to the next point the book of Job teaches us. When we face suffering, we, we must concede our own limitations. We must concede our own limitations. Elizabeth Elliot tells the story of something she observed on a farm once. She was staying in the highlands of Wales, and she said one time each year the sheep had to be dipped in a big vat of antiseptic, otherwise they'd be eaten alive by parasites and insects. But then as she watched the process, she felt sorry for the sheep. One by one, the shepherd would seize them and force them into the vat. She said the sheep didn't understand at all. They would try to crawl out, but on the one side of the vat, there was this sheep dog barking, making them stay in there. And on the other side of the vat, there was the shepherd that would force them back in, grab them and push them under, totally submerged, eyes, nose, and mouth. And as I watched them, she said, I realized I've had many experiences in my life where I felt like those sheep The great shepherd, the Lord, was holding me underneath. And when I asked why, I didn't get a word of explanation. And what I love about that illustration so much is that those sheep couldn't understand. If you want to explain that to a sheep, go ahead and try. See how how that goes for you. They can't get it. And God says, it's the same for you, Dave. You are like one of those sheep And I know this in my mind, but when he's holding me under the water, it's hard to trust him. But we need to be humble and concede our limitations and just let him do it and entrust our care to the one who knows all things. Here is this truth that the book of Job teaches us that we must learn. It is very difficult, but we must acknowledge it today, and it's this. The sovereign God of the universe does not have to explain himself to you. I know that's so frustrating to hear, and it's not what you want to hear. But this is the lesson Job learned, and it is a lesson we must learn as well. That's why at the end of the book of Job, Job says, I spoke about you, but then I saw you in all of your wonder and I put my hand over my mouth. I retract my statements. I see the vastness of God compared with myself. I must now humble myself. And he bowed his knee and he let God be God and he learned to love God for who he is and he found peace and he was restored. You might say, well, why does God make us go through all this in the first place? And I don't know all the reasons, but I do know what's very clear in the scriptures is that God has promised us that all things for his children, all things will work together for our good, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And I think you can see that in the book of Job. Job only allowed, I mean, God only allowed this suffering for Job because it would completely backfire. You recall originally, God allowed Satan to accomplish what he wanted to, but it actually accomplished the opposite of what Satan intended. Satan wanted Job discredited and exposed as a fraud and a phony. Yet at the end, Job is put forward as a model of godliness and faithfulness through suffering. He is one of the most famous people in the human race. Billions of people have heard his story. Here we are talking about him even today. God hates evil and suffering, but he only permits it when it will be self-defeating, only to the degree that he can bring it about for good. It's just like that verse at the end of Genesis when, when Joseph forgives his brothers. He says to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. This is how the God of the Bible works. Whatever Satan plans... God will make it backfire every time. Consider the ultimate example of Christ dying on the cross. 
It has rightly been said that the cross was the worst that human evil could ever do and the most unjust suffering that has ever occurred. And yet, in Colossians 2.15, Paul says at that very moment, as Jesus was dying on the cross, he was also disarming the powers and triumphing over them. John Calvin said, at the cross, evil turned back on itself. At the cross, destruction was destroyed. At the cross, torment was tormented. At the cross, damnation was damned. At the cross, death was dead. At the cross, mortality was made immortal. See, in the greatest backfire of all time, the suffering of Jesus made a way to end all suffering one day, once and for all. I think this is what makes Christianity so unique as a resource in dealing with this problem. Our God is not distant or aloof or removed from suffering. Our God actually has wounds. One time John Stott said, I look at the Buddha and he's got this smiling grin on his face and I have to look away. Instead, I go to the cross where I see the bloody, messy anguish of my Savior because there I learn my God is with me. My God understands my suffering and my pain. I mean, look at the cross of Jesus, an instrument of torture. So often we think, you know, God, I'm suffering here and you don't know what it's like, but maybe the cross is God's way of saying, actually, I do. So often we think, God, if you could only walk one day in these shoes, but maybe the cross is God's way of saying, actually, I have. And so often when we suffer, we think, God, you don't know how this feels, but maybe the cross is God's way of saying, actually, I do. You see, the book of Job teaches us that our God can sympathize. Christianity might not have all the reasons for suffering, but one thing it can't be. It can't be that God doesn't care. After all, look at the cross. It doesn't teach us all the reasons that suffering occurs, but one thing it can't be, it can't be that God doesn't love us. After all, look at the cross. Last point. In the middle of Job, when, when he's lamenting to himself, he makes a very profound statement of hope I want to point out. He says in chapter 15 and verse 7 this, at least there is hope for a tree. If it is cut down, it will sprout again. But a man dies and is laid low. He breathes his last and is no more. Here's Job thinking about his own death. And he says, even a tree, sometimes you cut that down and still, you know, sprouts shoot up and it still can have life. But that's not the way it's going to be for me, Job says. But here's what I really long for. 13. If only, God, you would... Hide me in the grave and conceal me till your anger has passed. If only you would set, a, set me a time and, and then remember me. See what he's hoping for? Remember me. The word remember means put me back together. Remember me. Put my members back together. What's he talking about? He's talking about a hope of life after this life, a hope of resurrection. He goes on to say in verse 14, if someone dies, will they live again? All the days of my hard service, I will wait for my renewal to come. You will call, and I will answer you. You will long for the creature in your, hand, your hands have made. Now look what he's hoping for. After he dies, he hopes that God would call out to him and bring him back to life. This is exactly what God says is going to happen one day. When he says, not have you considered my servant Job, but have you considered my servant Dave? Have you considered my servant? And he puts your name there. You remember in John chapter 11, Jesus the Lord himself had a friend who died and he was placed in a grave. What did Jesus do? He, the Lord, longed for the creature he had made. He longed for his friend and he called out to him and Lazarus answered and came forth. Here's why that's so important. The Christian hope is that one day in the great consummation of all things, when I'm lying in the grave, when you're lying in the grave, 
if we have trusted in Christ, one day he will long for you, the creature he has made, and one day he will call out your name. And you will answer, and he will remember you and put you back together, and you will be raised to life. That's the final lesson in the book of Job. When we face suffering, we must connect with hopeful expectations. One day the Lord will return and he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And in that moment, all suffering and death will be vanquished and it will be swallowed up in victory. When you swallow something, it becomes a part of you, right? That means one day in a way that I fully can't really understand right now, all of my pain, all of my suffering will be swallowed up as an integral part of God's victory in my life. That's my hopeful expectation. My favorite quote about this is from Fyodor Dostoevsky. Let me just put it up there for you. He said this, I believe like a child that suffering will be healed one day and made up for, that all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will one day vanish like a pitiful mirage, that in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all the crimes of humanity, for all the blood that they've shed, that it will make it possible not only to forgive in that moment, but to justify everything that has happened. That's what we believe. And until then, we walk by faith, not by sight. I know everything around you is not the way it's supposed to be. But C.S. Lewis said the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that one day it will not always be so. That's what Job is hoping for. That's what I'm hoping for. That's what we're hoping for. When you face suffering, check your motivations. Correct bad explanations. Concede your own limitations and connect with hopeful expectations. Worship team, would you come? And as they come, I just want to close with one more quote from probably the greatest hymn writer of all time, Annie Johnson Flint. If you don't know her story, she was an orphan as a child, and she contracted rheumatoid arthritis as a little girl. She was bent over for most of her life. She also had cancer and went blind. Because she spent so much time in bed, at the end, she was covered with sores. And I want you to listen to her words of wisdom. She says this, He giveth more grace as our burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength as our labors increase. To added afflictions, he addeth his mercy. To multiply trials, he multiplies peace. His love has no limits. His grace has no measure. His power, no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. Let's pray.